0: Good? Okay. Well, good morning uh, to all of you. Thankful that you're all here. Welcome to uh, this class on Systematic Theology Part 2. So this is last semester we did Part 1 in the fall, and last week uh, Connor Davey did a wonderful job of reviewing that, uh, all of that material that we went through in the fall. And as I was telling Susan here earlier, if you weren't here for any of those, you can go back and listen to those online. Um, But basically, in Systematic 1, we covered the doctrine of the Word, the existence and attributes of God, creation, humanity and sin, God's providence, and then we finished with the person and work of Christ. And so this semester, if you look on the back of your handout here, you'll see that you'll see where we're going uh, over the next few weeks. So we're going to cover the Holy Spirit for the next four weeks. Then we're going to do salvation, the church, and eschatology, which is just a fancy way of saying the end times or the last things. And so uh, if you weren't here last semester, or if I haven't met you, my name is Sam Dawson. And um, along with Cliff Hughes and Connor Davey, I'm super excited to uh, be with you guys this semester. We're looking forward to just digging into what the Bible has to say about these different topics and and considering these things together over the next few weeks. So let me, um, let me just open us up in prayer. And then we will, we will jump in. Father, we are, uh, we're so grateful to you uh, for everything that we have. We know everything that we have uh, comes from you. We're thankful uh, for this beautiful day. We're thankful for the opportunity uh, to gather together and consider what your word has to say to us about your spirit. Lord, and we pray uh, that your spirit would actually uh, be at work in this time that we are together that it would uh, be at work uh, that he would be at work with me um, giving me clarity to uh, communicate these things faithfully and that your spirit would be at work uh, in everyone listening that uh, to open up their understanding to to know and understand uh, who your spirit is and and all of the Uh, things about who he is so that we might worship him more and love him better and 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 so we just commit this time into your hands and uh, we lift it up to you in Jesus name amen okay so this is our first topic in this course and and as I said our topic is on the Holy Spirit and we're gonna spend quite a bit of time on this okay so, as we did with the doctrine of Christ, we're going to divide this section between the person and work of the Spirit. Um, so, today we're going to consider who the Holy Spirit is, and then for the next three weeks, we're going to look at what he does. What he does. So, here's a question just to get us started Be honest. How many of you have ever referred to the Holy Spirit as it? How many of you have blasphemed the Spirit in this way? Just, so you, just, just as a reminder, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. So if you've raised your hand. But if you noticed, in my opening prayer, I inadvertently said it. It. Because when you're talking about your spirit, praying to God, talking about your spirit, sometimes that can happen. But why do you think we do this? Because it's, uh, it's not, we're not talking about it as a person, it's like a spirit, it's a thing. Right. It, we, we seem to be talking about it or thinking about it as a thing. So... So why else? Why else do we refer to the Spirit as it? Should we refer to the Spirit as it? That's right. Yeah. So when we think about... <clears throat> Uh, God the Father and God the Son, it just it seems to make more immediate sense to us that there's a relational component that we're familiar with, that of a Father or a Son. But then when we come to the Spirit, it's tempting to think of the third person of the Trinity as maybe cold or distant, um, or as some impersonal energy like the Force in Star Wars. But when we read the Bible, we see something very different, right? Yeah. So in the Bible, the Spirit of God is more than divine energy. But as Sinclair Ferguson says um, in his book on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is God extending himself in active engagement within his creation in a personal way. I'll say that again. The Spirit is God extending Himself in active engagement within His creation in a personal way. Okay, so let's, with that, let's look at our first main point, which is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. So what do you think it means to say the Holy Spirit is a person. What do we mean by that? Identity. S- distinct identity. Very good. Yes. What else? Right. So we can interact with the Spirit, which which would... Uh, be personhood that would show personhood just the the interaction that we can have yes let me ask you this what does it not mean to say that the holy spirit is a person right yeah that he's a human person that the holy spirit is a human person so we don't mean that the only person of the godhead that took on humanity was jesus christ right the son um So the Spirit is a person in distinction from being just power, force, or some abstract energy. Okay, the Holy Spirit is a person in the same sense that the Father and the Son are persons. Therefore, His power, activities, and ministry should be understood in terms of His personality and personal relationships. So we see personality and personal relationships with the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. And one way that theologians have referred to this is that the Holy Spirit has personal subsistence. Subsistence. He is an intelligent, voluntary, living being with understanding and will. Okay? So, as you know, as Christians, we worship one God, okay? We are monotheistic, meaning we worship one God. And yet, Scripture clearly depicts three persons of the Godhead. And this, of course, is the doctrine of the Trinity, which we covered last semester. Did you teach on the Trinity, Cliff, or was that Sam Connect? Okay. So, again, you go back and listen to that if you haven't heard that. We go really in-depth into this doctrine of the Trinity. Here's what our our statement of faith here at UBC says. says, We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection and without division of nature, essence, or being, yet having distinct personal attributes, and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. That's a summary of what we believe about the Trinity. So, while being one with the Father and the Son, there is a distinction made between each of the three. So, for example, Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. In Romans eight twenty six and 27. And this, of course, means that there's a distinction between the Holy Spirit, who is making the intercession, and the God the Father to whom the intercession is made. So that's just an example of this distinction that we see. One God, three persons. And this is different from a false view of God that's called modalism. Anybody know what modalism is? Joe. God is sometimes the Holy Spirit. He's sometimes the Father. He's sometimes the Son. Yeah, exactly. Modes. Yeah, different modes. That's right. So it claims that God is not really three distinct persons, but only one person who appears to people in three different modes or forms at different times. So, for example, they might say that in the Old Testament, God appeared as God the Father. In the Gospels, God uh, appeared as the Son. And then after Pentecost, God appeared as the Spirit. So that's modalism. That's a heresy that we reject. Okay. Um, This view does what other false views do by trying to make the mystery of the Trinity completely understandable and reconcilable. So that's what virtually all the heresies in the early church were they were trying to take things that were mysterious and they were trying to boil them down to something more simplified and more concrete. Um, but that's, there's just there's just a problem with that because, as we know, there's many doctrines in Scripture, the Trinity being one of the chief ones, where we just have to hold some mystery there. <clears throat> um so and and, you know it just it brings up all kinds of obvious problems if God is one person appearing in different modes then was Jesus when he prayed to the father was that just merely a charade that he was putting on or was was there a distinct person actually praying to another and then how could the spirit descend on the son when he was baptized if if it's the same person just operating in different modes. doesn't make sense. So there were also other heresies in the early church that denied that the spirit was a separate personal entity. So one of these is called Macedonianism, <clears throat> a less well-known um, heresy, but Essentially, what that means is that they said that the Spirit was more like an essence or an influence or energy from God the Father. So that the Spirit was a created being and not really a person at all, but just this force or this energy. Okay? And because of that, his place in the Trinity was questioned in light of these ideas, and so it's really important to establish the Spirit's personality, which is his defined separate identity, okay? And so so we've got three primary biblical reasons to conclude that the Holy Spirit is a person, just as God the Father is a person and just as the Lord Jesus Christ is a person. Okay. So on your handout you'll see three things there. The first is personal pronouns. Personal pronouns are used to describe the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus and the apostles speak of the Holy Spirit, they always use personal pronouns. He, him, himself. So if the Holy Spirit had a LinkedIn profile, the pronouns would be he, him, himself on these Okay, That's a bad joke. Um, so we see this in the upper room discourse when Jesus is talking to the disciples about, about the Holy Spirit before he knows he's going to be crucified and leave them. So he says in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay? We see it also in Romans 8, where Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then again in verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So then, in addition to the personal pronouns, we see that the Holy Spirit speaks, and he makes statements in the first person. Okay, so um, in Acts 10... 19 and 20, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Acts thirteen two. while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So, you see these these pronouns that clearly testify to the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He, him, himself, I, me. Any questions or comments about any of that, personal pronouns? Pretty straightforward, right? Okay. All right, well, the second reason... To conclude that the Holy Spirit is a person, is from the personal properties or characteristics that are ascribed to him, such as intelligence, will, and emotion. So we see personal properties. And we can see some of these in First Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 11. I think it'd be worth it just to turn there. You guys want to turn to First Corinthians twelve? Maybe somebody could read that for us. First Corinthians twelve. Yes, yeah, seven through eleven. Twelve, seven through eleven. Can somebody read that for us? Okay, so what personal characteristics of the Spirit do we see here? Power, yes. How so? He's he's giving, he's giving power, yeah, yeah. He has the power to impart these things, right? Yeah, what else? Right. That's right. So we see will, we see purpose. He's making determinations about certain things. Yeah, all the, the, verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. And we saw that also just a minute ago in Acts 13. Set apart for me uh, Barnabas and Saul... To the work for which I have called them. Like the Spirit is making a decision to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a certain work. And and even in um, even in his second missionary journey uh, for Paul, it says in Acts 16, they were forbidden by the Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Acts 16, 6. And as they were attempting to go to Bithynia, the spirit of Jesus did not permit them to do so, Sixteen seven. So we see will and purpose in the, in the spirit, right? What else do you see there in, in that passage that's a personal characteristic of the Holy Spirit? How about intelligence? The Spirit is an intelligent being, meaning he possesses knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And so he has the ability to impart the gift of wisdom and the word of knowledge. We also see in 1 Corinthians 2.11 that the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. So we see knowledge there. Um, in Romans 8, that we were talking about, about the Holy Spirit interceding for believers. He's able to do this because he knows the will of God, and God knows the mind of the Spirit, right? So we see intelligence, knowledge. We also see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit has emotions, right? The Holy Spirit feels things, So the Holy Spirit is capable of love because we see that Paul urged the Roman believers by the love of the Spirit in Romans 15.30 to pray for him on his behalf. And the Spirit can be grieved, right, or sorrowed by disobedience in a believer. We see that in Ephesians 4, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That is Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So the the Holy Spirit has these personal characteristics. But then in addition to that, we also see in Scripture that he's involved in personal activities. Personal activities. And that brings us... To our next point. So what question for you is, what personal activities of the spirit do we see in scripture? What are some that come to mind? Come on, this is an easy one. There's lots of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in the context of this, his activity, beyond just, you know, his characteristics, what actions does he take that are personal actions? Yeah. So he, how about this? He comforts. He's the comforter. Jesus called him that in John 14. He commands things. We saw that in Acts 13. He creates. So he was involved in creation. Genesis 1-2. He empowers God's people for ministry. He guides. He guides us. He intercedes for us. He prays. He reproves. He speaks. In Acts 8.29, we see him speaking to Philip. He teaches 1 Corinthians 2.13. And he testifies concerning Jesus. John 15, 26. And on top of that, he reveals, he counsels, he helps, he loves, he can be grieved, lied to, blasphemed. So all these are personal activities that require personality and require personal relationship for these things to take place. And so in all of these, we see the clear personality or distinct identity of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Okay, and hopefully from this, it's clear that a biblical view of the Holy Spirit requires that he be regarded as a person and not as a power or force. Make sense? So here's a question for you. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that the spirit is a person rather than an impersonal force or energy? I think you just kind of touched on it. The quality of what if it were impersonal, that would suggest a quality of what we could not relate to or have a connection to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. Nick is, is essentially saying this is important because the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person means we can have a relationship with Him. Like, we can have a relationship personally with the Holy Spirit. So, and we'll talk more about this in the next few weeks when we discuss the work of the Spirit. But as we're led by Him, loved by Him, purified, indwelt by Him, All this happens in the context of a relationship, okay? And so, hopefully we've established clearly from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is a person. So now let's turn to what the Bible says about the deity of the Holy Spirit, which is our second main point on your handout, and that's that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God, Cliff. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Cliff is noting that uh, in order for us to properly know and worship the Spirit as he deserves to be known and loved and worshipped, we need to rightly understand how he's revealed to us in Scripture, which is as a person, not as a thing. Very good. Okay, so let's look at then the fact that the Holy Spirit is also God. The Spirit is God. So Scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit is fully God, And so if we say that the Holy Spirit is fully God, then it stands to reason that he would possess divine attributes, which is exactly what we see throughout Scripture. So we see that the Spirit possesses divine attributes. So what are some of the attributes of God that we see in the Holy Spirit? You can't miss the first one. Love, absolutely. How about holiness? He's the Holy Spirit. Right? Yes. And this attribute of holiness, it expresses most fundamentally God's moral purity, okay? His set apartness from all that is morally unclean or wicked or sinful. So that designation of Holy Spirit Testifies to the fact that he shares in the attribute of divine holiness that also characterizes the Father and the son what else what other what other attributes of God do we see in the spirit? Yes, absolutely, omniscience. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is all-knowing, and Cliff is noting in, in Romans 8, he, he intercedes for us, as we've, we've talked about that several times, but he's able to do that with groanings that are even too deep for words, so he, the Holy Spirit prays for us in ways that we don't even understand, and, and, and it says in Romans 8 that he knows what God knows. The Spirit knows what God knows, and so is able to pray for us in that way. yes. Also, we see that in 1 Corinthians 2, which we've already referenced. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So, yes, omniscience. What's another attribute of God that the Spirit possesses? Yes, Yes, the Spirit is truth. Absolutely. The Spirit is absolute, tr- is the, the definition of truth in the same way that God and the Son and God's Word are synonymous with truth. The Holy Spirit is synonymous with truth as well. Excellent. What else? There's more. Omnipotence. Talk about it, Frank. <clears> hmm. <throat> Absolute power. Yes. His work of regeneration and calling of sinners. Yeah. Shows absolute power. Yeah. Raising dead hearts to life. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Very good. What else? mm-hmm wisdom yes Omnisapience is that <laughs> that's a that's a big word for you sean cooper's back there smirking because he knows it he's the only person in this room who knew that word yeah yeah god is all wise the spirit is all wise absolutely what else there's more these are great yeah he's infinite he's eternal right absolutely the list right the list is infinite but there's lots of places in scripture where specifically we see those attributes applied directly to the spirit hebrews nine fourteen says how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? So there we see that the spirit is eternal as well in the same way that the father and the son are. Yeah. Yes. Very good. Yes, Cliff says uh, self-existence, not created, because the Spirit hovered over the the deep prior to creation. So yes, very good. Omnipresence, He's everywhere at once. We see that in Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your Spirit? from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depth, you are there. So, yes. So, so, again, just all the divine attributes that we see applied to the Father and the Son, we see applied to the Spirit in the same way. And yet, the Spirit is personal, right? So, transcendent and immanent as well as in in the same way as the rest of the godhead so sometimes it's easy for us to gloss over stuff like this and miss the significance but if we think about just the personhood of christ i mean of the spirit along with his divinity we can see that because he's divine he has these divine resources divine knowledge divine presence so to know him is to know the God who satisfies and supplies all of our needs. Do you need wisdom? Well, you can know the one who is omniscient. Are you lost or lonely? There is one who no matter where you go, he is there. Are you feeling weak? You can know the one whose power is limitless and who renews our strength. And so the Spirit's being a person and God are essential to our understanding and to our Christian life. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to explore the work of the Spirit together. But without this foundation of who He is, we can't really understand the work that He does. Okay, any questions or, or thoughts on that? Okay, Well, let's move to the next, next point, uh, B. He, perform, he performs divine work. Performs divine work. So we're going to spend the next three weeks discussing his divine work, so we're not going to say that much about it here. But suffice it to say that all throughout Scripture, we see work attributed to the Spirit that only God can do. So on your handout... we've listed John 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's explaining that in order to enter the kingdom of God, one must first be born of the Spirit. So he's describing the new birth or the Spirit's work of regeneration. Okay, and that is clearly work that only God can do. Okay, so let's move to C. He's also identified by Scripture as God. So we see clear descriptions of the Holy Spirit as God throughout the Bible. Probably the best known is in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story? Verses 1 through 4 says Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to who? God. So lying to the Spirit, according to Peter, is synonymous with lying to God. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, it's a Frank is saying that's that's a very clear passage to point to other false religions who wrongly say that the spirit is just a force or a created being. Yeah, absolutely. And then this is a less known one that I came across that I thought was interesting that in uh at the end of 2nd Samuel when David is writing this song in uh 2nd Samuel 23 He says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And then in the next verse, he says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So there again, David is making the, the spirit of the Lord is synonymous with the God of Israel speaking. So, and then, kind of going along with that theme, our next point is that the Spirit is identified as Yahweh of the Old Testament. So, a couple of places where that is clear. In uh, in, In Acts 28... Paul invokes this curse from Isaiah 6 on the religious leaders of Israel who came to him while he was under house arrest in Rome. And he said this in Acts 28, 25 through 27. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So he's quoting there Isaiah six, nine and ten, which Isaiah says was the voice of the Lord. So Isaiah calls this the voice of the Lord. Paul says that was the Holy Spirit speaking. So, Holy Spirit, Yahweh of the Old Testament, one and the same. Similarly, in Psalm 95, 6 through 11, we see uh, this warning against, to the Israelites against their hardness of heart. And this warning came from Yahweh directly. Psalm says it's from Yahweh because he's Israel's God. But the author of Hebrews, in one of his warning passages, in Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 9, attributes those same words to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Do you see the connection there? How um, Paul... And the writer of Hebrews can say, the Holy Spirit says. And then the Old Testament writers, in saying that same thing, said, Yahweh says. Any questions, comments on that? Okay. So if you look on your if you look on your handout on this next point which is that the spirit is distinct which is there's a typo there M- distinct is misspelled but he's distinct from and equal to the father and the son. And this is this is the point we've been making um, this is the doctrine of the trinity which we talked about earlier but I put this I put this little illustration there, which is somewhat helpful to capture this idea of three persons, one God. So you see, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So so like I said, we mentioned the Trinity earlier. We discussed it in depth last semester, but it bears repeating because it's so critical and it's foundational not only to our understanding of the Holy Spirit, but just for all of our Christian belief. So, let me ask you: what in what passages do we find the word Trinity? Let's start there. It's not there, right? Trinity is not the word. Trinity is not in the Bible. So where do we find the concept of the Trinity? <laughs> Genesis 1 and then ending in Revelation 22? Is that what you're... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, plural pronouns used at the very beginning of Scripture. Absolutely. So the Father, Son, and Spirit were operating in the creation of the universe. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Trinity is this term that the church developed to summarize a doctrine that's given to us in pieces throughout Scripture. And it's a helpful word that is seeking to convey all that Scripture talks about regarding the relationship of the Godhead. Okay, so the doctrine of the Trinity is a summary of several biblical concepts that are indisputable from Scripture. Namely, that there's but one God, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are each distinct persons, and that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are each fully God. Okay, so Christianity clearly affirms that there's only one God, but this one God exists in three persons. So do you think that's a reasonable doctrine? You think it's reasonable? Well, yeah. If you're talking to an unbeliever or you're talking to uh, someone who's from a different religion that doesn't believe in the Trinity... And they say that doesn't make sense. Right. What I do you say? I think that's a fair point and you know, from a human reason and human logic, it's hard to fathom fathom three and one. But I forget that there is kind of a, a, a term for like, you know, where something exampery paradoxically had that paradox yeah. quality. Yeah. Right yeah, so there's mystery essentially, I mean mystery does not necessitate contradiction right so there's 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 nothing inherently unreasonable or irrational about the Trinity. there's nothing inherently contradictory despite the fact that it's mysterious, um, because we're not saying that there are three gods and one god or that there's three persons and one person no we're saying three persons in one god so but in another sense you're right from a human perspective from a a mind that doesn't have the spirit to illuminate these truths to them it can seem very unreasonable um And and, uh, there's a quote from B.B. Warfield that I found that was really good. He says, The doctrine of the Trinity is indiscoverable by reason. So it is incapable of proof from reason. There are no analogies to it in nature, not even in the spiritual nature of man who is made in the image of God. And I think he's, he's summarizing really well how... We just have to hold this mystery in one hand and trust that it all makes sense in the mind of God, even though it's foolishness to those who are perishing, right? It may seem as foolishness to those who are perishing. Right. Yep. Right. And on top of that, it's the Spirit's work to reveal these things to people. Right? Nobody can understand these things apart from having their eyes supernaturally opened by the work of the Spirit. So... You know, it's interesting to think about, and even as I was preparing for this lesson and even as I was praying before we started here, it's like we need the Spirit's help to understand the Spirit, you know, and so when we're talking with unbelievers or talking with, you know, people from false religions about these things, we have to understand that, yeah, it's the Spirit's work to make this make sense to them. We can't do that, and we can't do it through our reason. But we can be faithful to share the truth of the things that we know from Scripture and trust that God in his sovereignty can reveal that to them through the work of the Spirit. Yeah, great thoughts. Okay, so lastly, the Spirit is God because the Spirit comes from the Father and is sent by the Father and the Son. So, the night before his crucifixion, what was Jesus teaching his disciples about? What does he see as important for them to know? In the upper room. Right. Yeah. In in John 14 through 16, this upper room discourse where he's, He's giving them everything you need to know after I depart. He's teaching them on who the Holy Spirit is. And notice what he says to them in John sixteen seven. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So put yourself in the shoes of of the disciples in that moment to think about that you've walked with Jesus, you've ministered with him, you've listened to him, you've formed this deep relationship with him over the last three years. They've given their lives to him. And then yet Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away because the Holy Spirit is going to come. I mean, I don't think I don't know about you, but I don't think I could have been able to get my mind around that in that moment. That anything could possibly be better than being with you, Jesus. Like, I don't know who this helper is, but (laughs) he's not you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they... They were going to have to transition from walking by sight to walking by faith. And so, and then in John 15, 26 and 27, Jesus is again talking about the helper, the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so there's kind of this double entendre, this double meaning here between the disciples and the Spirit. So just as the disciples will bear witness about Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness to them about Jesus so that they can bear witness to others. So because what's what's the qualifications for them having been a witness of him? In verse 27, because you've been with me from the beginning. So if that's true of the disciples, how much more true is that of the Holy Spirit? That he exists in perfect unity as part of the Godhead with the Son. So so he was a witness of everything Jesus did to the nth degree. And was then able to then give testimony of that to Jesus' followers. And now to us. One early church father um, said the Holy Spirit was Christ's inseparable companion. And that all the activity of Christ was unfolded in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so in eternity past, the Spirit and the Son were in perfect fellowship with one another. So when Jesus was conceived in the Virgin Mary's womb, it was the Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism and his temptations and his ministry of miracles and his teaching, the Spirit was there leading, empowering, and making him known. And even in Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension, the Spirit was there. We see that in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 and Romans 6. So here's the point. As the one who has been Jesus' constant companion, the Holy Spirit is the perfect one to bear witness to and to make Christ known. And that's precisely what he does, and that's part of why Jesus can say that it's better that he leave so that the Spirit can come. So to have the Spirit is to have the Spirit of Christ to have the Spirit, is to have Christ. And so he's no longer limited by space and time, and the Spirit manifests the presence of Jesus to us. So that is powerful to think about. That the the constant companion of Jesus was the Spirit. And now that Spirit lives in us Bearing witness to everything Jesus said and did. So, wrapping it up. Um, remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he says in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is giving a sneak peek into eternity past in the perfect, abiding, loving relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And amazingly, in the verse before, Jesus had testified that God would love Jesus' followers even as the Father loved him. And do you find that difficult to grasp and difficult to believe and live in light of? That God loves us even as they ha- the Trinity has loved one another, the persons of the Trinity have loved one another from eternity past? But this is one of the this is one of the precious ministries of the Spirit. Romans eight fifteen and 16, Paul says, This of the believer, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption, which means that one of His jobs is to make us conscious that we are sons and daughters of God and to help us better know that the love, to know that love that God loves us with. So I pray that as we go through this that we're going to come to better know that today and in the coming weeks as we consider the person and work of the Spirit together. Any closing questions, thoughts? Sean. Are you stretching or are you. Okay. hmm. I do not. So Sean's question is: um, Is my belief that the Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Spirit? And no, my answer is the Spirit was obviously, as we've talked about, etern- you know, eternally present. So and certainly present and at work in Old Testament saints. But I think when you get to the New Testament. It becomes clear that there's something distinctly different about what's going to happen at Pentecost in the way that the Spirit is operating in the church and in believers. So I think that, and I, and I think indwelling is part of that. So I think in the Old Testament, the Spirit was at work, it was enabling, it was empowering. He was enabling, he was empowering. See, I did it. The blasphemy it's unforgivable um so but but i think at pentecost in exactly what way is hard to know but i think there was something distinctly different from acts chapter 2 on about the operation of the spirit and i think the indwelling was part of that oh boy okay yeah good yeah (laughs) That's a great question. Let's let's talk offline about that because that it, <clears throat> I I have thoughts on it, but it could get down a rabbit hole. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I also the, and also it could get more particular on views when it comes to that, which is not necessarily the intended purpose of this course. Makes sense? Okay. <clears throat> To me, it's clear that there was a difference in the operation of the Spirit in the Old and New Testament. The way that that fleshes itself out in those kinds of details, I think, is, yeah, that's open to different views. Okay? Uh, Any other questions? No? Okay. Okay. Good. Let me close this in prayer. Oh, Lord, we are uh, just in awe of uh, the depth and profundity of your wisdom as you've revealed yourself to us in Scripture, uh, in awe of the mystery of the Trinity, in awe of the person and work of the Holy Spirit i uh, so thankful that because of the Spirit's uh, work in us that we have been united to you and adopted as your children and now have the hope of spending eternity with you. And, uh, Lord, we're so grateful for that, grateful to be able to come together and learn about these things, consider these things, worship you um, in response to these things. We pray that uh, that, that would continue in our corporate gathering. Uh, as we go to gather together to um, read your word to pray your word to sing your word and to hear your word preached or we just pray that you would be glorified in that and uh, that you would just uh, keep our hearts focused and fixed on you during that time and it's in Christ's name we pray amen